find the Gospel of John chapter 8 with me this morning. The Gospel of John, the 8th chapter. Back in February of this year, several of us men were over in Bangladesh on a mission trip. Brother Bertram, I think Jacob, and myself, and um, I think that was it. And, and we, we went over there on behalf of Fishers of Men Ministries. Brother Mund had made some contact and had been working uh, with a national Brother Lemon. Brother Lemon is not his real name, but we don't know how to pronounce his real name. His last name is Sarkar, I believe is how you say it, but came to be known as Brother Lemon. And so we went over there and spent 10 days there. That was 10 days with no luggage. My suitcase didn't make it. It, made it didn't make it all the way. And so 10 days on two changes of clothes. And, but anyway, we had a wonderful time. There were 17 river churches. We visited quite a few of those and just, just a fabulous ministry and, and uh, starting a Bible college. Brother Lemon and his family have had to leave Bangladesh. They've had to come out uh, because of some threats there. So they're in the States and he will be here in our service tonight. Uh, he and his family be coming. And so he's going to take a little bit of time, introduce himself and uh, tell you about the work that's over there. And you do not want to miss that. And so be in your place tonight at 6 o'clock, and then Brother Jones will be preaching for us, and just going to be a great, great evening. <laughs> hey, I talked to him during handshaking time. I did. I talked to him during handshaking time, and, and we set it up. We got it, we got it going. So John chapter 8, the gospel of John chapter 8. We we're making our way through this gospel on Sunday morning. Last week, we only got one verse, verse 12, I am the light of the world. And so we need to cover some ground this morning. So John chapter 8 and verse number 13. The Pharisees therefore said unto him, Thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true. Jesus answered and said unto them, Though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came and whither I go. But ye cannot tell whence I come and whither I go. Ye judge after the flesh, I judge no man. And yet if I judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am the Father that sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Then said they unto him, Where is thy father? Jesus answered, Ye neither know me nor my father. If ye had known me, ye should have known my father also. These words spake Jesus in the treasury, as he taught in the temple, and no man laid hands on him, for his hour was not yet come. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way, and ye shall seek me, and shall die in your sins. Whether I go, ye cannot come. Then said the Jews, will he kill himself because he saith, whither I go, ye cannot come. And he said unto them, ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of this world, I am not of this world. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Three times. You shall die in your sins. I have wrestled with the text this week really for several reasons. 
One, it is a very long dialogue between the Lord Jesus and his enemies. We've stopped reading in the middle of the conversation, but the conversation actually extends to the end of the chapter, 49 verses. And there's not a clear break or a clear division in it. So it's been difficult in breaking it down into a preachable section. And then the second difficulty is, is that much of the material in this chapter has already been covered in a previous chapter. You may remember in John 5 when Jesus came to Jerusalem and healed that man at the pool of Siloam and there was a long conversation in chapter 5 and it has to do with Jesus' claim to be one with the Father. It's the same, pretty much the conversation with probably some of the same men. So really John chapter 8 is not new material in the Gospel of John. And then the third difficulty with the text is that there is no happy resolution to the text. The enemies confront Jesus, but when he speaks, they interrupt him 10 times. They don't understand anything that he's saying, they misinterpret everything that he says, and in the end, they want to stone him. So from a preaching standpoint, it is a little bit challenging to know how to structure the format of the sermon. You may remember that we are in the city of Jerusalem and the city and the Jews at large have just celebrated the annual Feast of Tabernacles. It is that great feast, that occasion that has brought Jesus to Jerusalem where he knew that he would face great opposition. Though the religious elders hated him and they had been plotting to kill him, there is something that has constrained him and that's something that constrained them and that something has been heaven. They're not able to do their deed until God gives them permission. You see that back in chapter 7 and verse number 30. The Bible says, And they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. We see it in chapter 8 and verse 20. No man laid hands on him for his hour was not yet come. Down in verse 59. They took up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going to the midst of them, and so passed by. They would love to have him killed, but they have to wait till heaven gives the green light. So Jesus is seen in and out of Jerusalem, and he's teaching people in the temple courtyards, and he's debating with his adversaries. We are six months away from the crucifixion at this time, and from this time forward, the hatred and the animosity is just going to build and build until they finally are able to get him on the cross. And you can see that animosity even building in this chapter. In verse number 13, they say that your record is not true. In verse number 19, they ask, where is thy father? They, that, that, that is an insult. We'll look at that in just a minute. In verse 41, they said, we be not born of fornication, insinuating that he was born of fornication. In verse 48, uh, then answered the Jews and said to him, say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil. The insult is more pointed, it is more direct. And it's just to give you an idea of the hatred and the animosity that, that is building in the heart against the Lord Jesus. When Jesus begins this, Next round with a remarkable claim in verse 12. Where he says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light 
of life. We looked at that last week and the Jews understood that this was a claim of deity with God, but also a claim of Messiahship. The Old Testament scriptures, especially Isaiah prophesied that when the Messiah came, he would become a light, not just to Israel, but a light to the Gentiles. And they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. It's interesting to me that when Jesus makes that claim that, that they don't challenge him on that claim like they had in chapter five. But, but what they do is, is they take a different angle at opposing him. Verse 13, the Pharisees said to him, thou bearest record of thyself, thy record is not true. Here's what they're saying. The Old Testament law requires that there be two witnesses to confirm a thing, but you can't be your own witness. Jesus, in fact, even referenced that in verse 17, when he said, is it not written in your law that the testimony of two men is true? So Jesus is making the claim that he's the Messiah, but they throw out a legal challenge. Where are your witnesses? You're saying that this is who you are. You need two witnesses and you don't count. But what has John been doing since John chapter one and verse one, except throwing out witnesses to the claim of the Lord Jesus? his words that they could not refute, his miracles that they could not deny, the testimony of John the Baptist, the woman at the well in Samaria, the noble man in Capernaum. What are they? Those are witnesses of what they are. John has been parading this long parade of witnesses, but here is the fact of unbelief, and that is that unbelief never has enough proof. The unbelieving heart never has enough evidence. If you witness to someone and they keep, throw, keep throwing up objections and, and objections and objections, the problem is not ignorance, the problem is unbelief. I'll say it again, the problem is not ignorance, it is unbelief because belief begins in the heart and then it moves to the head. It begins in the heart and it moves to the head. It is not ignorance that breeds unbelief, it is unbelief that begets ignorance. If a person is just ignorant, he hasn't heard the gospel, he hasn't heard preaching, whatever it might be, then that's a good place to be in because then you can hear the gospel, you can get a witness, read a gospel tract, and no longer be ignorant. You can then learn something. But some men are ignorant because they choose to be so through their unbelief, and that becomes a very deadly combination. These men in this chapter don't understand anything that Jesus is saying because they wouldn't believe it if they did understand. And it is better for you to not be, it is better that you do not believe because you are ignorant than for you to be ignorant because of your unbelief. Jesus said, if any man will do his will, there's the prerequisite. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine. The heart comes before the head. So they present this legal challenge. So Jesus answers it in verse 14. Jesus answers, said to them, though I bear record of myself, yet my record is true. For I know whence I came and whither I go, but ye cannot tell whence I came and whither I go. In other words, in other words, Jesus said, yes, I testify myself, but my record is true because I am true. Do, do you know why you need a law that requires two witnesses? Do you know why you need that law? 
Because the law acknowledges that we live in a world of liars, right? You and I live in a world of liars, and so you have to have a law to protect the innocent from unfounded accusations. The law is an acknowledgement that even in a court of law, men don't always tell the truth. Sometimes they perjure themselves, so to give you a better chance against lying witnesses, you gotta have at least two witnesses. Jesus said, that doesn't apply to me, because even if I do testify myself, my witness is true. And then Jesus turns the tables on them. He says, I went whence, for I know whence I came and whither I go, but ye cannot tell whence I came and whither I go. Their ignorance is intentional, and here's how you know it, because they don't know where he came from. Well, somebody could have checked the temple records right there. That's where they kept them. And they could have checked the records and found out that he was born in Bethlehem, but they assumed that he was from Nazareth because that's where he grew up. They could have checked the records and found out that he came from the right tribe, the line of Judah. They could have found out that he had every legal right to be the king. They could have known, but they didn't want to know. So verse 17, it's written in your law that the testimony of two is true. I am one that bear witness of myself. The father that sent me beareth witness of me. Then said they unto him, where is thy father? And you can see, you can see how that they don't believe because they don't want to believe. Their ignorance is based in unbelief and there's never enough proof for them. So, so here's what they say. They say, where is thy father? Now I'm gonna tell you right now, that's intended to be an insult. And they mean one of two things. All right, you're talking about your father. It is believed that, that his earthly father, Joseph, was dead by this time. So, so if you're talking about Joseph, he's dead. But there was also the rumor out that, that, that Mary and Joseph had not been married when Jesus was born, and so that Jesus was born illegitimately. That's what they insinuate in verse number 41. We be not born of fornication. There's the rumor that Jesus was born out of wedlock. So, so if you want to talk about your father, we'll flip that and we'll use that to try to embarrass you. And of course they struck out both times because Joseph was not his father, right? And he wasn't born illegitimately. And it just goes to show how, how ignorant that they were. They didn't know what they could have known and they don't have an interest in knowing anything else. They didn't know Jesus and as a result, they don't know God. Now that's who Jesus is talking to. And I want you to notice, I want you to notice what he says to them. In verse 21, look at it. He says, I go my way and ye shall seek me and shall die in your sins. In verse 24, in verse 24, he says the exact same thing. He says, I said therefore to you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Jesus looked at those pious, self-righteous, religious Jews pointed his finger in their face and said, because you do not believe in me, you will die in your sins. I don't know if I've ever read a more solemn statement in all of my life. 
That, that is so shaking words that ought to drive every sinner to his knees in fear and dread. Jesus knew their heart. He knew that they'd never repent. He knew that they'd never believe in him. And he announces to them in his omniscience that one day you'll die in your sins and go to hell. That's solemn, isn't it? That's hard. And the reason why he could say that is because he knew that he would do everything and be everything that a sinner needed to not die in his sins. If you're here sitting here this morning and you are lost, I want you to know that in him are hid all the treasures and wisdom and knowledge. That Christ Jesus is made to us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and justification. He is all of those things to us. In Jesus Christ, there is cleansing from sin. And in Jesus Christ, there is justification before the Father. In Jesus Christ, there is grace to live the new creation. In Jesus Christ, there is the possession of eternal life. It is all found in Jesus Christ. But when you reject him, you reject everything that is found in him. You know, when you read a conversation in a book, you're not able to read the tone of voice, the volume, the emotions in the conversation. So we read the conversation and we don't know exactly how it was, but if I know the Lord, I don't believe he says this in anger. I don't believe he says it in frustration. I believe that he says it with grace and compassion in his heart because the Bible says that Jesus is the friend of sinners and a friend will tell you the truth whether you want to hear that or not. And you ought to hear him because he is going to go to the cross and he's going to die on the cross for their sins and pay his pay as a ransom for their sins and he would weep over them. He would pray for the Father to forgive them. He would give his blood for their sin. What a statement. You'll die in your sins. This week I tried to get past it. I really did because I got to cover a lot of ground and I couldn't get past that statement. You shall die. I want you to notice, first of all, in verse number 21, that Christ speaks of a departure. Look at verse 21. Then said Jesus again unto them, I go my way. The last part of the verse, whither I go, ye cannot come. Now I believe that Jesus is referencing his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. And Jesus knew what lay ahead. I believe that he knew the cross with all of the torture was near. He knew every step that he had to take. He had come to earth for that purpose. And when Jesus said, I go my way, I, I think he's referencing that horrific death, but not just the horrific death, but a triumphant resurrection and, and a glorious ascension. It was the way to which he was fully surrendered. It was the way that had been planned before the foundation of the world. I, I go my way. It's the way of the cross. It was necessary that he go the way of the cross, by the way. It's necessary that you go by the way of the cross as well. He came with a mission in mind. Nothing would sidetrack him. Nothing would deter him. Nothing would stop him. He, he would not delay it. He would not stay any longer than was necessary. And so Jesus is telling them that it won't be long before I finish the mission and I go back to my father. It's interesting, the Bible says that the Son of Man, even the Son of Man doesn't know the hour of his return. 
But I believe with all of my heart that he knew the hour of his death. I believe that Jesus faced every day knowing the days were getting shorter. I believe he knew the exact date, the exact hour, Passover. I believe he knew exactly when he would go to the cross. The Bible says that he was obedient unto death, even, even, even the death of the cross. So he speaks of a departure. But then in verse 21, he speaks of a desire. Look at verse 21. He says, I go my way and ye shall seek me. So die in your sins, whither I go, ye cannot come. They don't believe in him. They accuse him of blasphemy. They don't believe that he's the Messiah. But Jesus said that one day your eyes would be opened. He says there would come a time when men would seek him and not be able to find him. You will realize too late that you have crucified the Messiah. They would remember these words. These words would, would haunt them one day for the rest of eternity. Salvation is offered to every man, even to those who are standing there, but the offer is not forever. You don't know when it is, but there is, there is, a, there is a deadline that if a man crosses, there is no return. He says, you will seek me, but whither I go, ye cannot come. That's a solemn thing, isn't it? Do you remember when Jesus was arrested that night? And they brought him before Pilate. And Pilate was a coward. Pilate didn't want to have anything to do with him. Pilate wanted to wash his hands of the whole affair. He knew that this is an innocent man, but I can't just let him go because of the right of the Jews. And so he decided to send him to Herod. He's from Herod's territory. Let's see if I can pass the buck to Herod. And if you remember in Luke chapter 23, Herod was actually, the Bible said, exceedingly glad to see Jesus. And the reason why is because he had many questions and he hoped to see a miracle from Jesus. So in the middle of the night, they bring the Lord Jesus before Herod and Herod is excited for the opportunity to get to be able to talk to Jesus. And so Herod begins to ask him questions. The Bible says in Luke 23 that Jesus answered him not a word. He answered him nothing. Here is the son of God standing before Herod. Herod wants to ask questions. He's wanting to know something. And Jesus doesn't speak to him. And why is that? That is the Herod that had John the Baptist beheaded. You know John the Baptist that stood in his court and said, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. The preacher that preached the word of God to him and said that this is sin and you need to get it right and God's going to judge you. And Herod didn't want to hear that message and so he had John beheaded. And when he shut the voice of John the Baptist, he shut the voice of God in his life. He didn't want to hear God. He didn't want to hear the voice of God. didn't want to hear God's message. And now God stands before him. The Son of God, stand before him. Say something to him. Talk to me. And God wouldn't speak to him. The last words that he heard from God was the mouth of that messenger that he cut his head off and said, I don't want to hear you anymore. And God shut his mouth and never spoke to Herod again in his life. 
I believe that I believe with all of my heart that you can silence the voice of God in your life and you come to a desperate time and you cry out to God and he's not speaking. Baptists used to preach years ago. Baptists used to preach this thing called conviction of sin. Huh? But that has fallen out of the way with this modern gospel. I believe that a man can be saved, any man can be saved, but not any time that he chooses. I believe that it is predicated upon the convicting of the Holy Ghost. And if God never convicts you of your sin, you'll never come to the Savior. But what happens when a man says no, 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 no to God, and finally God turns him over to a reprobate mind and no longer convicts him. Used to be an old Southern Baptist preacher years ago in my childhood. J. Harold Smith had a message preached, God's three deadlines. One of those deadlines is the deadline of rejecting Christ and the voice of the Holy Spirit until he grants you a request and he leaves you alone. You could be saved if you'd come to Christ, but you're not coming if the Holy Spirit doesn't draw you. I believe with all of my heart, with all of my heart, there are lost church members who have sinned away the dead grace and they never feel any conviction of sin, never feel any tug of the Holy Spirit and they're just playing a religious game and, and if Jesus himself came and preached the message, they wouldn't repent. That's why Isaiah said, seek you the Lord while he may be found. Call you upon him while he is near because there'll come a time when he will not be found. There'll come a time when he is not near. These men speaking to Jesus have an opportunity to seek Christ, but he's telling them that there will come a time when you will seek and you will not find me. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. You remember Genesis 6 in the days of Noah? God said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. Noah warned that generation of judgment that is to come for 120 years. And for 120 years, no man outside of his family believed anything that he had to say. The mercy of God has no limit, but the forbearance and the patience of God does have a limit. And when God shut the door and the floods began to pour out of heaven, men banged on the door and they begged to come in, but the door was shut. And no matter how you curse and no matter how you scream, no matter how you beg, it is too late. I'm not trying to scare people. Please understand. We're on the, not in the business of just retreading. But I think sometimes we need a good dose of the fear of God again. There's, there's a verse in the book of Ecclesiastes. I, I forget where it's at. I've preached on it before. But the verse says, if the tree fall toward the north or toward the south, in the place where the tree falleth, there it shall lie. Whichever direction it falls, there it lies. When you cut a tree down, you, you, hope, you hope that you're cutting it away from the fence and the house and the car. But if it twists in the wind and it starts to fall, wherever it falls, that's where it's going to be. You don't get to stand it back up and try it over, right? right? No, where the tree falls, that's where it lies. And, and, and all of your life, God has been inviting you to a banquet of grace. 
365 days a year since you were old enough to know your right hand from your left hand. That invitation of the Holy Spirit has gone out. The preacher preached and you were invited. Mama prayed and you were invited. And the soul winner on the job witnessed to you and you were invited. And a stranger gave you a gospel track and you were invited. But you never had time. You were always indifferent to the gospel call. You treated the invitation with disdain. And for all of these years, you treated the grace of God with indignity. But when the banquet hall is spread up in glory, you'll not be sitting at the table because you spurned the grace of God. He, he, said, he, said, he said, I go my way, you shall seek me, and whither I go, ye cannot come. You ever said in the airport terminal, hear the boarding call? Pre-boarding, all those with special needs, active duty veterans, little children, pre-boarding. Boarding Delta One, premium select, sky priority, boarding, boarding. All in main cabin one, main cabin two, main cabin three. We're now boarding all rows, all passengers, basic economy. I don't ever board when it's my time. I like to board last, sit on that plane as little as I possibly can. I've got a ticket. I got a seat assignment, I'll, I'll get on it. Final boarding call, final boarding call. Plane's departing in 10 minutes, final boarding call. All passengers need to be on the plane. When I fly with my wife, which is rare, my wife waits till that call. Make one more run to the restroom, which is a half mile down the terminal. <laughs> Go to Starbucks for a coffee. And I'm standing at the gate, final boarding call. Where are you at? Get ready to leave without you. I'm going to tell you, when, when the call for buying final boarding call comes, you better get on the plane. Because when they shut the door, that plane can sit on that tarmac for an hour. They are not opening that door for you. You, you can get mad at the clerk at the gate, you can wave your ticket in the air, you can call for security, TSA, you can get mad, threaten a lawsuit. They're not running you out there on the runway to get you on that plane. No, once the door has been shut and the last boarding call has been issued, you have been left behind. And I think a lot of people think that they've got a ticket in their hand just because they've got their church name on a, a name on a church roll or they've been baptized and they're just waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting. But I'll tell you that the last call is gonna go out and you lose every opportunity to be saved. Do you realize that everybody that's gotten saved has gotten saved in this life? This life, not the next life. In the, I'm trying to get off of this, all right? Y'all pray for me. But everybody that's gotten saved has gotten saved in this life. If you could bring every soul that's in hell, bring them back from the grave, give an invitation, every single one of them would run to the altar and beg to be saved. They don't give invitations in hell. They don't sing one more verse just as I am in hell. They don't have any soul winners in hell. There's no personal workers in hell. The door has been shut forever. He speaks of... A desire. But then I want you to notice in our text that Christ speaks of a death. I go my way and you shall seek me and shall die in your sins. 
Very definite. Very determined. It's not a chance. It's not this might happen. It is a certainty. And it is that you do not die for someone else's sins, but you die in your sins. Those, those Jews, those religious doctors of law sitting there, they should have fallen to their knees. But if you read the rest of the chapter, you know what they do? They double down in their unbelief. You would think that the weakest preacher preaching the weakest message on hell would get sinners to fall on their face. But you know what they do? They double down on their unbelief, their self-righteousness, their pride. Does it make you uncomfortable? We come to hear, we come to hear the preacher talk about how good people we are. Jesus wants us all to be healthy and wealthy and happy and fat and just wants you to have a wonderful life. Come to hear church, hear a little music, hear a little sermon, check church off the box for the week. I'll tell you what we need. We need God to shake our faith, shake our souls to the core, expose our sin. If you're here this morning, if you are lost, I want you to leave disturbed. I want you to not enjoy the service. I want God to wake you up in the middle of the night because I don't want you to die in your sin. Death is an absolute certainty. We don't like to talk about it until the doctor gives us bad news. When we come back from the doctor, we, we try to reverse the curse. And if I found out that I had a terminal disease, I'd do everything in my power to stay alive for one more day. I'd mortgage my house. I'd, I'd do everything that I possibly could to stay alive for one more year on this earth. But after you have exhausted every means, you know what's going to happen? You're going to die. You're going to die of something. I'm going to die of something. You stick around long enough and death is going to catch up to you. Job, Job says, seeing that his days are determined, the number of his months are with thee. Thou hast appointed the bounds which thou cannot pass. God's determined the time. You're going to die. Every man dies, but every man dies only once. There's a lot of things that you can get a redo on, but not death. You, you fail the test, you can take the test again. You lose a job, you can get another one. You fail at marriage, get a divorce, you can get married again. You, you, you fail at a business, you can start another business, but you die once. So you better make sure you get it right the first time. The thing that you're going to do only once determines your utmost attention to make sure that you get it right. Jesus looks him in the eye and he says, you shall die in your sins. He didn't get angry and tell him to go to hell. But he told him, you're going to go to hell if you don't believe. If there's one doctrine in all the Bible that I wish I could strike out of the Bible, it's the doctrine of hell. I've never been so angry at someone that I told them to go to hell because even my worst enemy, I wouldn't want them to go to hell. I know that God is just in condemning the unbeliever to hell. I know that. But I wish the hell were not so. Profane men have made a joke out of hell and they have laughed about it. We're going to have a party in hell. There's no partying in hell. 
One day it will be discovered that everything the liberal theologian and profane idolater, every lie they told about hell, one day they'll find out that everything the Bible says is absolutely true. The torment of fire and brimstone and outer darkness and the haunting of the memory and the unquenchable thirst and the sorrow added to the suffering. And Jesus looked at these devout Pharisees, these religious devout, not the prostitute, not the drunkard, not the fornicator. He is talking to the most pious men of his day. It's as if Jesus is standing in a church full of Baptist people full of religious Sunday go to meeting people dressed in their final and religious people go to hell just like your religious people. It says you shall die in your sins. How do you die in your sins? I, I give this to you and I'll be done. How, how, how to die in your sins? How to go to hell when you die? Well, I say, first of all, just be self-righteous. All that you have to do is convince yourself you're okay. Just another 10 or 15 minutes, we'll be done. If I can just hang on, get out of the service, won't be back tonight, I'll watch me a ball game. I just get out from under conviction, convince yourself that your heart's not all that bad. I don't really need to be saved. I'm not as bad as my neighbor. I don't really have that bad of a sin problem. Just tell yourself that you are an average sinner and God will surely see it your way in the end. Tell yourself that you surely have got more merits than demerits. You've got more good points than bad points. And if you keep telling yourself, you will assure yourself that you will die in your sins. Look, look what he said. He, he said. he says in verse 21, he said, you shall die in your sins whether I go, you cannot come. Look at verse 22. Then said the Jews, will he kill himself because he saith, whither I go, ye cannot come. That's one of the most arrogant, blasphemous, vilest things that a Pharisee ever said. So why, why would they say such a thing? Is he going to commit suicide? Here's why. The Pharisees consider suicide an unpardonable sin. They believed that anybody who committed suicide was banished to the darkest parts of the eternal place of punishment. I don't believe that. I believe that a saved man can commit suicide and still go to heaven if he is truly saved. I, I believe that. But here's how vile these Pharisees were. They asked among themselves, is Jesus going to kill himself? And if he kills himself according to them, then he must be going to hell. Ha, 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 ha. So that's what he must be saying. I'm going to kill myself and go to hell and you can't follow me. That's what they're saying. They're convinced that they're better than Jesus is. Be self-righteous. How, how do you go to hell when you die? Just be of the world. Verse 23. Ye are from beneath, I am from above. Ye are of the world. I am not of this world. Now to not be of this world doesn't mean that you're an alien, but it means that to be in the world, it means that you buy into this world system. The world of politics or the world of sports or the world of entertainment, the world, the world of science is to buy into the philosophies and the practices that make up this world. It's so opposed to truth and righteousness and holiness and purity. This world's opposed to everything that's godly and virtuous. It's driven by materialism and by, by lust and humanism and, and carnality. You just be wrapped up in this world. Just live for this world. You'll die in your sins. What'll happen? How do you go to hell when you die? Unbelief, verse 24. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins. For if ye believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. Unbelief is a clenched fist 
in the face of God. You may think it's in the head, but it is in the heart. It's in the heart. Beware lest there enter into you any evil heart of unbelief. They ask him in verse 25, I've got to be done. Then said they unto him, who art thou? You've got to be kidding me. You, you've scrutinized his ministry. He's healed the sick, fed the multitudes, cast out the devils. You've listened to his sermons. You've been amazed at his doctrine and his authority. You've heard him claim. And you have the audacity to ask, who art thou? In the very next chapter, Jesus is going to heal a man that's born blind. It starts a huge debate about who Jesus is. And the people are arguing with him back, back and forth. They argue with the blind man. They argue with the Pharisee. And they're just all arguing back and forth. And finally, the blind man gets frustrated. And he says, hey, why, why do you think this is such a marvelous thing? He says, I don't know who he is, but it's what I know. Whereas I was blind, but now I see. Why, why is it such a, a mystery to you? The fact that I was blind, but now I see ought to be evidence enough to you that he is God. They knew who he claimed to be. They've heard him claim that I am one with the Father. They knew exactly what he was talking about. And in the face of his claims, they said, Who art thou? Tell us again who you say you are. Tell us again, who did you say your father was? It is not for their fornication. It is not for their adultery. It is not for their thievery that Jesus says you'll die in your sin. It's for your unbelief that you'll die in your sins. I believe that men go to hell for any and every sin, but it is the sin of unbelief that seals the fate. It's the final sin. You can commit every sin in the book, but if you come to Christ in faith and repentance, he'll forgive you of that sin. But if you'll not believe Christ, You'll die in your sin. That's a solemn passage, isn't it? I told you I had difficulty with it this morning going through it. But the biggest difficulty is that it is not a pleasant message. When we come to church, I know that we have people sitting here that represent every need possible. And you want the word to speak to those needs. Comfort, strength, encouragement. We need all of that. And this passage doesn't offer that. The passage is for the unbeliever. Jesus is saying, whatever you do, don't die in your sins. There's one silver lining. I give it to you. Joe, get ready. There's one silver lining in it. It's in verse 30. Verse 30, as he spake these words, many believed on him. Do you remember the day or the night that you believed on him? Do you remember that? Do you remember when faith burst through the darkness of your soul of the gospel? Do you remember that? Isn't it good to be saved? Isn't it good to have assurance of salvation? Isn't it good to hear a preacher pour his heart out and preach on hell? And you not be scared that you're going there. Isn't that a blessing? Can I give your testimony? Can I give your testimony? I was in Brazil, and I got a text from Jordan Seeley a few weeks ago. And Jordan Seeley texted me and said, I got saved. Well, it's the most spiritual sinner I ever knew in my life, to be honest with you. But a few weeks ago in Alabama on a Sunday morning, last year, last year at Brother Gravely's church, really wrestling with assurance of salvation, tormented me. 
And sometimes you make a profession of faith as a young child, and sometimes you understand, sometimes you don't. And, and I know when you get saved, when I got saved, my life didn't take a big transformation, and I didn't quit drinking and doping and all of that, because I didn't do it before I got saved. And thing you hear unshackled in those stories, and my experience didn't fit your experience, so is my experience real? I've been through all of that. But both Jordan said, God, I've been dealing with my heart. I don't believe I'm saved. You saved now? Got it settled. Got it done. Nailed it down. Nailed it down. Isn't it good to hear a message on dying in your sins and know that I'm not going to die in my sins? Couldn't go to hell if I tried to. Couldn't go to hell if I wanted to. Many believe heads about eyes closed when you bang heads with me.